I'm Jeanette Braverman, connector, entrepreneur, author, business professional, and yes, a public official. I've successfully pivoted multiple industries and along the way, I've met a lot of wonderful people. And now I've started a podcast called Keep the Conversation Going. Why? Because I have a lot to say, but most importantly, because I'm a continual learner and researcher. I love hearing from leaders that are also leaving legacies and making a difference in the lives of others. You see, that's my tribe, and I'd like you to meet them. I'll be interviewing leaders from around the world and just regular people that are also leaving a legacy. Please note that all of their opinions and beliefs are their own, but I guarantee that the conversations will be so interesting that you'll want to keep the conversation going. I look forward to hearing your feedback. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. I am happy to kick off a new episode, including an interview with E. Keller Fitzsimmons. She's a serial tech entrepreneur, artist, and mother of two. She's the co-founder of Custom Reality Services, a virtual reality company whose first project, Across the Line, premiered at the 2016 Sundance Film Festival. Her work has been published by Network Computing, Information Week, and Inc. She's an active angel investor and serves on the Technology Committee for Bell USA, a venture fund that invests in women-led startups. Originally trained as a classical archaeologist, Keller holds a master's degree from Harvard University. I hope you enjoy our interview today, and I'm going to look forward to your feedback at the end. Hello, everyone. This is Jeanette Braverman with Keep the Conversation Going, and I have with me the lovely Kelly Fitzsimmons. Welcome to the show, Kelly. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm so giddy and excited about you being here. I'm excited to talk about your book, Lost in Startup Landia, Wayfinding for the Weary Entrepreneur. Love, love, love the title. How in the world did you come up with that? It, you know, you'd think that it was some sort of focus group or, you know, a bunch of people coming together and giving me feedback, which is what you're supposed to do with titling a book. But really, the, the title emerged as I was writing it. It got very clear that that was its name. Mm, startup landia mm -hmm. i love it it's very original and so tell us a little bit about this book journey and what inspired you to write the book well the book started as an act of sense making um when i started writing the book i was very ill at the time i had um recently um stepped down as ceo of harkin which was a venture-backed startup that i had founded co-founded and had led and raised a bunch of venture capital for. And uh, seven years into the journey, my health had deteriorated to the place where I was not able to keep going. And we didn't know what was going on with me. And over the course of the next few years, um, I would get worse and worse to the place where I woke up um, in July of 2016 and discovered that I could not read. Mm. and uh, we had no idea what was going on. We thought maybe it was grief. I had lost my mother six months prior, and then unexpectedly my sister uh, two months prior to that, and thought, okay, it's complications, but the fact is I can't read, um, and when I say I can't read, it was my reading comprehension that went out, so imagine people do this all the time. You're reading a book. You get to, like, 20th page. You have no idea what you've read, 
Um, it was like that, but it was more like autocomplete. My brain would just make up what it thought should be there. And um, I couldn't trust my comprehension. So it was in that setting that um, I resigned from all of my boards at that point and went to bed and uh, was experiencing chronic migraines and fatigue and I really couldn't do anything. Um, and frankly, I was scared to leave the house. I didn't want people to see me in that state. I was having memory loss and all sorts of other uh, really acute symptoms. So I had nothing better to do than to stare out the window and make sense of my life. And I started um, talking into the voice memos app of my phone and eventually uh, contacted a publisher and went on the journey of writing this book. And when I say writing, I, I should use air quotes, which you can't see because this is a podcast, but um, it was all dictated in the first several drafts. And um, so it was an act of sense making. And I wanted to write a book for me that I desperately needed when I was 29 and my first startup had failed and I'd been left on the hook for $5 million in personal guaranteed debt. Okay, so you were 29. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's huge. Yeah. I had a condo, you know, which is pretty good for 29, and I had like $50,000 in equity, yes. but I had nothing else to line up to that kind of like jaw-dropping debt. Um and so it was it was one of those moments where for the first time in my real in my life I hit failure with a capital F and I couldn't avoid it I couldn't walk around it I just ran into it at like 60 miles an hour mm. and it shattered my persona and who I thought I was and what I thought I was capable of and there was just you know at the time I just kept on keeping on. I was now the CEO of a, another company, and I was running that company during those three years that I carried the debt. And um, on the outside, I looked fine, but on the inside, I was really struggling. Mm. And so what kind of support system would you say you had at that time? Not much. Um, the, the, the business really fractured my relationships with my family. Um, I had... I had merged two companies together. There was a lot of hurt feelings in the merging of those two companies. People lost their jobs. I was the CEO. You can imagine how popular I was for that. Um, but, you know, the worst part of it was I didn't feel safe enough to tell anybody what was going on. Um, my now husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, really didn't even have a full picture of what was going on, which was I was suicidal. Mm. Um, and I was so scared of letting anyone know how desperate I was to get out of this debt that um, I just kept it all bottled up inside and I was in a really dangerous place. Wow. So I'm still puzzled about how a 29-year-old can get themselves in that kind of trouble. Well, but set out <laughs> on this amazing journey. Yeah. To yeah. start a business, you mm -hmm. know, a, and a lucrative business. That's mm -hmm. huge. Yeah. I started so, at 25. Uh, so I was four years in when the dot-com crash happened and our, um, our loans got called and our venture debt got called. And that was, that was the beginning of that. Mm, wow. So there's this quote in the book, and I loved it. Okay. It said, everything starts and ends with how we see the world. It is our perspective, negative or positive, warped or clear-eyed, that will shape the challenges, threats, and opportunities we will encounter. That's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. It's my experience. I've been, 
you know, so many people have said that sort of thing in different ways, but it's a, it's, it's one thing to say it and it's another thing to live it. And I really, if there's one thing I've discovered over the course of my career is the power of intentionality and the lenses that we wear. You know, most of the time it's subconscious. It's the inherited lenses of our family or our culture or the baggage that we might bring from childhood along with us that colors how we see things. And um, none of us are clear-eyed. We're all dealing with glasses and goggles and sometimes massive blinders on. And some of those blinders can be vaguely helpful, like, you know, I really got this. And sometimes it's like, hold my beer, I got this. And it's not. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it can work against you, too. Right. Um, it's not just like positive affirmish, affirmish, aphorisms. Uh-huh. Um, but it's like, it's like where, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves, you know, those are the things that are so powerful in terms of how we see the world because it attracts the energy to us. And I, I have just witnessed it again and again over the course of my life. I will attract people and things into my life that I need to learn from ultimately mm. to be able to grow better as a human being. Um, but as we were talking before we started recording, you know, to in some ways experience heartbreak, you know, mm. heartbreak to break me open so I can see with new eyes and, and hopefully not let that experience break me closed where I become embittered and uh, double down on my ego. Wow. Wow. So um, I know you've ha- you've had several interviews regarding your book, right? Um, and help me understand some of the feedback that you've been getting yeah. from the readers, because I know you have tons of reviews on Amazon, yeah. at least over 41 reviews. Yeah. So what are you hearing? A really amazing feedback. I mean, about a week before we published the book, I called my publisher and I said, um, I can't publish. And she's like, why is that? And I said, well, <laughs> my dad's going to read this. <laughs> and, you know, I meant it. I was just stone serious. So you like, hadn't told him yet? Well, yeah. I mean, I'd given him an early copy, and then all of a sudden the red pen came back, and I'm like, and then I just sort of took the copy back. <laughs> I'm like, thank you for your feedback. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and um, so – you know, I didn't necessarily publish with his blessing or my family's blessing. I decided, you know, this is actually my sense making and this mm-hmm. is my understanding. And it doesn't have to be true from anybody's perspective other than mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, as I was saying, we all have the way in which we see the world, the lenses that we carry, right? And yeah. so my experience is my experience. Um, but I'll the, the thing that that's come back again and again is that it's really not in some ways. It's a universal experience. Everybody experiences heartbreak. Everyone will experience failure of some kind. And if you live your life boldly enough, what you're really begging for is more heartbreaking experiences. Mm, right. <laughs> you know, you're you. really, you're tempting the universe again and again. And so some people will play very small because they don't want to go off and have that kind of grief. Um, and others of us will keep putting ourselves out there. And the, the, the only difference is when you get the heartbreak. Because mm-hmm. I want the heartbreak now. I don't want the heartbreak at the end of my life. When I'm sitting there going, I could have, should have, would have. I wish I lived the life I wanted to live. Mm-hmm. I don't want to die with regrets. And that's what I've just come to understand is, you know, everybody's on this journey. We all need to support each other. And too often we hide. 
we hide behind our persona we hide behind our our stories of self-aggrandizement um and when you're a public figure and you're putting yourself out there in a public way we have persona Mm -hmm. and i felt suffocated by my persona and i felt that it was a huge disservice to young entrepreneurs and others out there that were getting this false idea that successful entrepreneurs somehow just got on an escalator and sort of rode to the sky and if you read our bios like you're reading mine it's like it's easy to look at that and think oh well she was always successful Mm -hmm. you know she's doing something you know something in the water but what I'm really doing is giving you a very cropped picture the highlight reel of my career and hiding all the hard stuff Mm. hiding all the failure all the places where I didn't look good where I made mistakes and didn't own it where I you know had a vision that didn't get realized and here's the thing all entrepreneurs fail all of us do at some point the thing is it's not usually part of our public narrative and it scares me because so many entrepreneurs are coming into this world and they're young and they're bright-eyed and they're reading ink and information week and you know fast company and they believe the hype they believe if they just try hard enough they're going to succeed and nobody is telling the failure narrative and there's a good reason for that none of us look good in our failure narrative we, we do things and we act in ways that we're embarrassed by and we don't want to we don't want to cop to and so I said to do a real act of service I have to write a, write this book in this way that I don't make myself look like the hero of this story and so I kept going back and anytime I sounded too good or <laughs> I'd start interviewing more people right, right. getting more perspectives re- right. you know the only one I, I ended up not doing that was with my own family because that's a different relationship right, right. they want to protect my persona they want to protect the well they think they need to yeah they and think they need to when in fact you are the hero because you're honest because you were bold and courageous and your message is transformational And that's what matters most because that's what people want to hear. They want to hear the genuine Kelly. They don't want to hear the Kelly, the CEO. They don't want to hear the facade. They want to hear the real story because that's what they need to know. They need to know that they're going to experience challenge, right? They need to know that they're going to fail, right? And they need, they want to understand how to overcome the failure. So my question for you, honestly, is have you turned into some sort of a business coach where (laughs) I, I am not I'm not joking about this because uh, I can see people reaching out to you asking, hey, I have a startup. I love your counsel. Mm-hmm. I'd love to meet with you. And, you know, I mean, these are consulting services that you can provide. Not like you have time, but I'm just saying. Yeah. Have you, you know, thought about that? I'm kind of the worst business coach ever. <laughs> I really Why do you say that? because I give it away for free. The stuff that I that it, you know I wrote the book because it was really very much in the spirit of coaching, and mm-hmm. a lot of it is based on my own development and the work that I received through the Center for Authentic Leadership. Um, and I talk a lot about my coach and my experience uh, coaches uh, in the book. Um, the The thing that I ended up doing with all of that was I I looked at you know, who needs this the most? And the truth is, you know, there's so many good business coaches out there that are doing a good job in Silicon Valley and with tech startups and whatnot. But where there are nobody, no one is, is with musicians, 
Oh, interesting. And so I started working with 88.9 Radio Milwaukee because they had this program called Backline. And I had been uh, approached as a donor for it. And Backline is designed to help local musicians break nationally. Mm. And so these are very successful. Um, a lot of them are household names here in Wisconsin, like Lex Allen, for instance, or Raynon. They are so talented. And... Um, what the program does is give them $20,000 to help them make the music or video or whatever they need, and then makes all these introductions in L.A. and New York to help them, you know, forward their career. And I said, I really love the idea of this program, um, but I'm concerned that when we help them break nationally that they'll break as people. Wow. And, you know, my, my biological mom was an artist, and so I grew up in that you know, very hand-to-mouth household where she sold a painting, it was a good month. And I really worried about, you know, how do you make that transition? Most people don't think of musicians as entrepreneurs, but they absolutely they are. are. And if they're successful at that, they have a full business. You know, they have marketing, they have, you know, PR, they have a whole team that is on the payroll. Nobody teaches an artist how to be a business person. So I, I just stepped into it, and at first I looked at it from the business angle, but what I really decided to focus on was more of the leadership skills that we need to embody as human beings. Like, how do you have a difficult conversation? Mm. How do you make a good decision? How do you up your self-awareness so that you can start to turn onto the lights, the lights on to where we self-sabotage? So that my higher intention with all of this is to help these beautiful, talented, amazing artists stay alive. So what and, are their age groups, if I may ask? Oh, my gosh. So almost varies, all of them. It varies. Almost all of them are under 30. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And so it's just such a delight. Prime age. Yeah. yeah. Prime age for them to learn this. Actually, would have been great if they could have learned it sooner or all earlier of us. in life. But all of us. Kindergarten. Right? right? Why yeah. are we not taught, like, how to make a good decision in kindergarten? Mm -hmm. Like, it's... This wonderful thing, I woke up, I think I was 40 years old at the time, I woke up to this idea, like, the quality of our life really comes down to two things. Luck, which we can't do anything about, and the quality of our decision making. Mm -hmm. And nobody sits down and teaches us how to make a good decision. I mean, our parents might try to say, think it through, son, or, you know, daughter, you know, just think right, it through. Right. But there's, that's not enough. And there's this entire science to decision making. And I didn't discover it until I was in my 40s, where most of my career was already behind me in leadership. And um, it's really been an absolute joy. And actually, this week, we, we worked together at Backline on how to make a quality decision. And it was just like, Oh, that's amazing. It's so fun. Yeah. And it's it's just... That's it's, a whole new niche, actually. It is. I, I love that. So let's talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the tools you're teaching them around decision making? Because this is there is a chapter in your book about this. Totally. Right? Okay. Yeah, it's dedicated to it. Because it's like, at the end of the day, this is something really concrete and tangible. Mm -hmm. So most people think that a good decision is, you know, based on the outcome. Did a good thing happen. And the truth is, what happens is completely random. Like, you might make the best decision in the world, and what happens next, no good. No yeah. good, because the world is complex. Weird things happen. So what makes a good decision? And I woke up to the answer, <laughs> I think at the tender age of 40, 
Um, and it was in a blog post of all things by Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel laureate. Um, and he was talking about a particular cognitive bias called hindsight bias, just to be totally geeky about this. Mm-hmm. And it turns out he logs all his decisions and he looks at them at 30 days, 90 days, and 180 days to see whether or not that ultimately was a good decision. And then he goes back and he tweaks his process on how he makes a good decision. And the thing is, his definition, and this is now, you know, there's a whole science to this, a good decision is the product of a good process. A good decision is the product of a good process. How many of us have good processes around decision making? And I would say the answer is almost zero. Like if you've got somebody who's really good at it, maybe they do a pro and con list. Benjamin Franklin came up with a pro and con. Can we do a little better? You know, can we maybe? You know, hundreds of years, this is what we come up with. Okay. So and the truth is they have, but it's mostly in the realm of academics um, or elite CEOs. I mean, this is where you get taught these things. Exactly. Um, but a good process is a decision support system. And a decision support system is made up of really three core overarching ideas. First, handling the emotional side of decision-making. We are all emotional deciders. Up until the 1970s, when Daniel Kahneman wrote his you know, book that ultimately changed how we look at economic theory, we thought that human beings, if we told them what to buy and it was a rational thing, we would buy it. Turns out that doesn't matter at all. We're emotional deciders. And so what happened was behavioral economics was born. And since then, all of us, all of us since the 1970s have been an ambushed through emotional tactics of marketing. It's why they're always trying to play to our insecurities or our desire for you know sex or rock and roll or whatever. It's like image, right? Because it's all emotional. And it has nothing to do with rationality. Otherwise, we wouldn't be trillions of dollars in debt as a country. Agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. So how do we become more rational deciders? Well, first off, we have to handle the emotions. So what I did was I developed, based on his his sort of log and his writings, this, um, this series of questions. It's 28 questions, and I call it the decision matrix. And it, and it walks us through the decision um, and asking from different angles and perspectives to try and get at the emotional drivers underneath it. And here's the thing. So is it something yeah. like, if I may interrupt for well, a moment, please. is it something like, why are you making the decision? What is the decision about? Who is it going to impact? Is it something similar Something to similar that? to that, okay. yeah. Okay. You know, and so like the fourth question, you know, it's like the first one is, why do you need to make this decision right now? Mm. Because most decisions have some urgency or felt urgency to them. And there's an entire category of cognitive biases that is related just to urgency and, you know, making a decision too quickly. Oh, that is so good. Because I the thing that came to mind, because um, I recently just taught on communication and trust um, to like 45 kids at the Boys and Girls awesome. Club. Awesome. It was so fun. Um, and they loved it, by the way. You're mm. so right. They need it. So need it. So we much all younger. need it. Exactly. And so, um, and the foundation was Stephen R. Covey's book, The Speed of Trust. Yeah. And so we talked about how important it is for you to trust people, right? Which plays hugely into the types of decisions you make, Mm -hmm. right? The people that you work with, um, the people you choose to have in your life, 
the people you choose to trust. Right. Right. So there's decision making around all of that, mm-hmm. which, you know, actually even complicates other decisions that you Absolutely. need to make. Right? Absolutely. The resources that you um, that you hire. Yeah. You know, for your organization and so on and so forth. So I was just wondering if that played any if, if that um, actually was aligned with, I guess, where you're going or where he was going with this decision making theory. Absolutely. I mean, so so ultimately, the second piece of decision making that's critical is trusted others. Mm. So too often we do this thing where we know we have to make this really important decision. And we get to this part, even in the decision matrix, what do your most trusted friends think? And what do we do? Do we pick up the phone? Do we call them? Do we ask? Oh, no. We run it. Kelly, why do we rush? Why do we rush into decisions? Well, there's a couple good reasons for that. But Mm -hmm. what I'll tell you what we do do is we run a scenario in our head. We will say, I know just what, you know, my husband would say. And we run it through the holodeck of insert husband, and he's talking, and so we know exactly what he's going to say, right? Or our trusted, our best friend, you know, oh, I know exactly what she's going to say. And here's the thing: we don't. We're still in our head, and it's it's like a meat puppet. It's like like we got we're a little. We're making we're right? making huge assumptions, but it's we're still in the binds of our head, you know, and it's in the smarter we are and the more that we know that we're doing this and we have these biases and these lenses that warp our vision and warp how we see others and what we think they're going to say to us, we can't get out of it because we're still in our own head. So the only way to combat it is to get out of our head and get in conversation with other people. But it can't just be any rando. It has to be somebody <laughs> that is not attached to the outcome of the decision. So someone going, you trust. well, someone you trust, but it can't be somebody that maybe you're married to because mm-hmm. if that person is maybe dependent on the income that you are thinking about walking away from. True. There is an agenda there. So one of the things that we walk through is how do you create and cultivate external trusted resources? truth tellers and these are people who have no attachment to the outcome and who have entered into a consented relationship with you to give it to you straight and when i say consented relationship this is the missing piece like we all have that one girlfriend or guy friend that loves to tell us straight right Right. but there isn't consent we didn't actually say would you please give it to me straight (laughs) and so we like we avoid them they're just kind of jerks but if you get into a consensual relationship and say, I consent, I want to hear exactly what, tell me what I'm not seeing. Mm -hmm. And they agree to this. We're now in a much better place to be able to hear them because it's been invited. If that makes any sense. Yes, it makes a lot of sense. Now you call them truth tellers. And I'm using it loosely with it. Like it can't, you know, because everybody's got their own agenda. The best way to do this is actually to get people who are pretty far afield from the way in which you see the world. So this is where diversity and inclusion is so important. You've got to get people who don't live in your bubble. You know, so if you're not religious, seek out somebody who's got a religious point of view. You know, seek out somebody from a totally different area of work or line. And you have to really start to figure out where you can make friends that aren't inside your echo chamber. Yes. Because without that... You're just going to be getting, you know, shared righteous opinion. Mm-hmm. And with the most important decisions that you have to make in your life, does it worth reaching outside our bubble and meeting somebody we don't typically see and say, tell me what I can't see. And they're going to give you the world. 
Now, do you think some of it's just laziness? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is not easy. It's, you know, it's, it's because we feel so rushed and so busy. And the thing that we were talking about before about intentionality and how next year, as I was saying before we started, I want to, next year to be my most intentional year. I'm taking out all the busyness because busyness is a lie. Mm -hmm. It's a lie we create to keep ourselves from paying attention to what really matters in our life. And when things aren't going well over here at home, what do we do? Get busy at work, you know? And if work's starting, we get busy at home. Like we, we create busyness to keep that, that force field in place so that we can't actually look at and see the unworkabilities in our life and take action on those intentionally. Mm -hmm. um, well, and sometimes I think people think that being busy means that you're actually being productive. Totally different and, things. And totally different things. And or um, they think sometimes being busy makes them seem more important. We do. We It's a cultural cachet. It's a oh, fallacy. I'm. It, well, and it's also, I mean, how many times like people sort of humble brag on this. How oh, was I so, you know, I did a 90 hour work week last week or, you oh, know, I missed right. my kids. I had to miss my kids play because I was traveling. You know, oh, you're so important. Exactly. And it's code you know busyness has a value in our culture today but it's it's really an inverse negative value if you think about it because busyness takes us away from attention and we aren't able to be a, if we can't pay attention we can't be intentional yes and that's where all our power is and so with decision making the first thing we need to do is cultivate some awareness awareness of self that you know what we have all these cognitive biases and they're getting us into trouble so we can only get outside of that by taking care of the emotional drivers, really getting a handle on them, and then triangulating with outside people who don't have anything at stake and ask them. So what I do is I have people that I work with that I have no real relationship to other than in the context of being my truth tellers. And in the book, I call it triad. So it's two other people. Mm -hmm. And you, I take decisions, big decisions to them and triangulate. Um, and but it's, these are people that you've known. Well, in the for context a while of coaching, in yeah. The context of, okay, in the context of coaching, okay, right? Gotcha. So that's how I've been able to meet them, and so they don't live here. They're cross country, have totally different lives. Like there is no friendship overlap. There's no, yeah. yeah so that's a very totally unbiased. To, yeah, there's there's nothing at stake for them, you I know. And it's it. not to say that they're unbiased. Everybody's biased. Mm -hmm. The question is. How are they have do they have any reason to be biased in this particular regarding, context? Exactly regarding your yeah, your yeah. decision. Your decision. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So okay. So we're talking about decision making. And I read in your book also that you said it took me six startups to see Startup Landia for what it is and more happily what it can be. Mm. Six startups. Yeah. So what made you decide? to take on six startups. I don't think anybody starts out that way. Uh -huh. um, and I think that, you know, the more that you have, it's more probably a testament instead of to my drive and my overarching vision, um, more probably a side of mental instability. I mean, who does that to themselves? Truly. Well, I. you know what? You still look focused and fabulous, <laughs> which is actually another series I just started. I'm thinking, you know what? Hey, you look amazing. Thank you. Yeah. So Thank I wouldn't you. have known. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, took on six startups, but I mean, they were huge. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, the, my claim to fame really is that I was at the birth of three different industries before they properly coalesced as industries. So I started in information security in 1996. I uh, stepped into voice interface in 2006. So this is before Siri and Amazon Echo. 
Um, and then in 2012, stepped into virtual reality. So these are all industries um, and fields that you basically learned on your own. Yeah, but there wasn't a manual. There wasn't. There wasn't any. I mean, it was it was really flying by the seat of our pants, which is what I'm great at um, and why I tend to do this is I'm deeply curious. And if there's a problem that's worth solving and it's important enough and I care about it, I just I immerse myself in it. Um, but what but I love about you, Kelly, is that, you know, so you didn't even go to school for this. No, not at like, all. I am. Yeah, my, I went to school for IT. Okay, <laughs> so I clearly, I completely and clearly understand what you've taken on. Yeah. And so and you're just talking so nonchalantly about it, like, oh, yeah, I started a security <laughs> company. Yeah, yeah. That's oh, huge. I'm working, like, with, with some of the world's largest banks. Yeah. Like, it was hilarious. Like, I'm 25 years old. That's huge. Well, it's, you know, it's a little beauty of youth, too, and being so early and, like, Having uninhibited. Completely uninhibited. Like, how hard can it be? Like, all of my startups are, like, basically two questions. <laughs> like, how hard can it be? And then, like, what could possibly go wrong? Like, <laughs> I so love it. It's like, it's just such naivete. And I, and I say that because... You know, it's really easy to paint the picture of an ego, right? Of like, like look like a grand visionary. I mean, I have crazy awards that say I'm a luminary and a visionary, a power broker, all this stuff. And it's like, but the truth was, I, I'm more like the fool card, you know, like of a tarot deck, you know, just sort of uh -huh. do, 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 do. <laughs> you know, how hard can it be? <laughs> and, and that, and that is much more closer to reality. It wasn't like I went in with a grand vision of a, I'm going to be this industry titan. It was much more out of just curiosity and seeing a problem I wanted to see solved and just kept following my curiosity. And was there bravado and, you know, chutzpah and all sorts of stuff in there? Oh, absolutely. And in my 20s, I mean, it was all about, you know, I truly, <laughs> my, so my giftedness, like if I had to say, like, what am I actually gifted in? Uh -huh. It's PR and marketing. Like I'm oh. really gifted in PR and marketing, but I didn't want to be the PR chick. Like gotcha. I just didn't want to do it. Like yes. I didn't want to get siloed. And and at that time, you know, this is 25 years ago and still true today. You know, if you're a female executive, there's a couple seats at the table, you know, on yes. for the, you know, for the C-suite. You might get, you know, HR, you might get talent, exactly. you know, or you get marketing. Um, and that was pretty much it. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I'm like, screw that. I'm going to put my crown on. I'm going to call myself CEO. And I'm exactly. And I I had a little bit of talent, but what I really had a talent was to draw some great talent to me and surround myself with just mad geniuses who are really gifted at this stuff. And um, they just made me look really smart. Mm. Again, my giftedness is in PR. <laughs> well, and you know what else? Yeah. connecting yeah connecting with others you didn't try to do it alone yeah and so you built your your network you used your network and hence look at where you are today which is amazing Thank you're you. highly successful um you're a mover and shaker in milwaukee and you're still here thank you for staying in milwaukee yeah well it's it's kind of a requirement for me you know so i come from i'm a third generation entrepreneur um, my father and my grandfather started some major businesses here in Wisconsin. And, um, and my father, specifically over the last 62 years, has dedicated his life to building a very successful company inside Milwaukee, uh, very purposely still inside Milwaukee, um, employing a great number of people, um, but also helping to pay back to the community. So my parents became, my, my dad, my stepmother became um, one of very few families that fund the arts and fund the arts in a really big way. 
Um, so, for instance, um, I should probably name who my dad is. You my, should. So yeah. Some people don't know. Yeah. So my, my parents are Donald and Donna Baumgartner. Um, and my dad, uh, you know, original claim to fame. He actually does have a website, which is hilarious. <laughs> DonaldBaumgartner.com. Please, please go to it. It's an awesome vanity website. Did you help him with No, that? God, no. Like, I felt I stumbled on it one day. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> I love him so much. So yeah, so so on DonaldBaumgartner.com, you can see, you know, his wonderful, you know, gifts to the arts, which are huge. So first off, he was the chair of the building committee that and um, architect selection committee that ultimately chose Calatrava, and then became the president of the Milwaukee Art Museum that and oversaw the building of the expansion. And he went through hell doing that. I mean, it was not an easy process. Yeah. It was a over $100 million project. I can imagine. There was no civic dollars involved, but you would think there was from the negative press that came out all the time. And he had to stand up against a board that at one point said, well, we, you know, white marble is pretty expensive. Maybe we should do linoleum. <laughs> and I so wish I was kidding. But it's Wisconsin, right? You know this. You've been in those meetings. Well, no, oh it's good. It's just almost as good. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, he's a visionary like that. but um, And artist. And, yeah. And so my, my biological mom is an artist. And uh, they got divorced when I was six years old. So I went to the Florida Everglades to, to paint. My mother wanted to paint the Florida Everglades. And also drink. I mean, it was really about right. drinking. <laughs> Let's be very clear. Oh so I ended up in the Florida Everglades until sixth grade, oh. um, from first to sixth grade. And uh, at least it was warm. Well, it was warm, and uh, I had full reign of the island. I mean, that was an upside. Um, we also had every type of poisonous snake in the continental United States represented in this tiny little island. Oh my goodness. And my favorite thing to do, because I was completely unsupervised, mm -hmm. was to find the city dump and go find treasure. <laughs> oh my goodness. We had alligators, we had scorpions, we had insects I can't name that could kill you, plus oh. all these stupid snakes. Yes. So anyway, um the fact that I'm here is a is a miracle, but yeah. So no, that's I know a little bit about snakes since I'm from El Paso, Texas. Yes, you do. Yeah, we lived in the desert. So yeah, yeah scorpions and all those oh, totally. ew, right? bugs. I know. Yeah. yeah, but it was warm. That's all I can say. Right. I loved I loved the weather in Texas. So <laughs> and so then you came back here. I did. And now sixth you grade. live in Milwaukee. Or yeah. no, you live in I live in Milwaukee. Yes, you do live in I Milwaukee. I live in Milwaukee okay. proper. I live in the third ward. And um, you know, it was really important for us to stay in Milwaukee, um, because you know, in the beginning, when I was young, it was a burden. I, I didn't own my family name. I pretended like I didn't know who he was. And um, I never wanted my success to be connected to my family. Like, so I wanted to know that I made it on my own. That's just the chutzpah of a 20-something ego. Yeah. Yeah. But when I was like, so my dad got just purely understandable. You it's, know? you know, it was a thing. And it was, it was, it was, and, and, you know, some ways I really regret it, and other ways um, I'm grateful for it. So it's a mixed bag. But the story of the story is hilarious. Um, so over the years, being a female CEO in Milwaukee, I was in the Business Journal a ton, mm -hmm. and all the different you know trade rags and whatnot. And um, so I got to know all the publishers and the editors quite well. So my dad's getting knighted um, by the Milwaukee Press Club for doing something pretty extraordinary. He, uh, gosh, in 2016. He decided to forego selling the company to a competitor or a private equity firm and turn the company over to his employees in an ESOP, oh, surprised it. them. 
he walked away from over a hundred million dollars. Wow. And to do that, but he wanted to honor the employees and the families that had been, many of them, third generation, had been with him. And in so doing, made people who had, you know, high school diplomas mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. have been line mechanics their entire life, millionaires. Oh, and, what um, a philanthropist. Oh, it's, it's a pretty amazing story. I'm super, super grateful. And so, so this happened. So the Milwaukee press corps decides to knight him, right? And so we're over at the ceremony and I run into Mark Cass from the Business Journal, who's the editor there. I say, hey, Mark. He's like, oh, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm here for my dad's. <laughs> He's like, who's your dad? Who's your dad? And my dad is over here. He's like, wait, am I out of the closet now? Oh, my goodness. Yes, dad, you are out of the closet. So that... no, they had no idea. Nobody. Nobody. And wow. it wasn't an accident. I worked really hard to keep that connection out of the papers. Yeah. Well, I mean, but look, look at where you are now. Yeah. You know, I mean, hey, you're still successful. Regardless, yeah. Right? And, you know, I'm super proud of my parents. And now today you really can't go by anything that's related to the arts, whether it's the Milwaukee Ballet, they knew the Baumgartner Center for Dance or the um, Milwaukee Film, the Oriental and the Renovation. And it's, you know, they've done so They're much. very much invested in Milwaukee. In so city, invested. So. And, and you're propagating their vision. Well, you know, a lot of the second and third generation of wealth has moved away. And mm. so it's it's a real problem. I mean, there, like I said, there's very few families that fund the arts. Mm-hmm. You know, beyond UPATH and the other things, it really comes down to maybe five families. Oh. If you really peel back the onion and look at it. And so we're one of the five families. Oh, well, and bless your heart. Yeah, but love it's that. one of the few second, third generation that's still here. I love that, Kelly. I'm just so honored to know you, honestly. You're Thank so you. fun. You're so down to earth and genuine. And that's what people look for, honestly. Mm. They do. And, I mean, just humble. You're so humble. And I appreciate that about you. Thank you. Um, so the, the last question I have for you is about all the young girls out there that, are, that have an entrepreneurial spirit. And they want to move forward and start their own businesses. What advice would you have for them? You know, I would say it's not for everybody. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's only for the people who really have deep grit. I'll just put it out there. You know, you have to be willing to deal with some really hard decisions and, you know, pretty hard lifestyle. I mean, entrepreneurship from the outside looks so sexy and so awesome, right? It's like, I get to make up my schedule, but if you can fit it in a 100-hour work week, you know. I mean, it's, it's not what the brochure says it is. And that's another reason why I wrote the book. I wanted to give a really honest portrayal of what does entrepreneurship really look like once you're in, not in the first year, but like two to three years in. Mm. And so one of the things that I look for, like for instance, when I invest and I invest in entrepreneurs, is that I'm always looking um, for grit, you know. And the way in which I see that is that they've had some really major life challenges early on. And so the girls that are out there that are dealing with really difficult home lives, you know, the ones that are sitting there struggling in school, the ones that, you know, they, you know, they don't know what place they're going to be living in tomorrow. Those are the girls that have the, have the metal to really do this. And I want them to know that what might be labeled by others as a negative experience or a tough childhood can be looked at and reframed in a very different way. You're being trained to be incredibly resilient. 
if you can figure out your way to come out of those situations stronger for the experience, you now have what it takes to be an entrepreneur because nothing is harder than what they're going through. And, you know, what I found in my experience as an entrepreneur is that even the darkest days still didn't, you know, they paled in comparison to what I had experienced in the Everglades. <laughs> even the darkest days. <laughs> really? Oh, it's true. No, it's true. Oh and it's like, I couldn't thank my mom enough, right? Yeah. I mean... I, if I had that was just, your launch pad right it was there. my launch pad. I mean, so I, when I started as an entrepreneur, I was seven years old and I was selling coconut and driftwood to the tourists and they'd show up and this is the 1970s and they'd show up at my little bench and they'd say how much for the coconut and uh -huh. I'd say 20 bucks uh -huh. and they'd look at me like I was crazy <laughs> and I would point to the tree uh -huh. as if I had climbed it. Right, right. And they would just like peel off the twin. Oh, <laughs> So I hustled. Super I mean, smart. well, also, you know, a little shady, yeah. but, you know, I was, I did what I needed to do. Mm -hmm. And I would have never done that if I kept, if I'd gone from, you stayed here. yeah, if I'd stayed here and I went to university yeah. school, do you think I would ever be hustling like no, that? No, no. So it's like, I couldn't have done it without my mother creating that break, showing yeah. me in a totally different reality. Mm -hmm. um, one where, you know what, I didn't feel secure. One where I didn't feel safe. One where I was genuinely scared a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And things like money, they weren't, it wasn't there. Right. So I, I, I got an exposure to a whole different existence. And I knew I didn't want that. And I knew when I got back to Milwaukee and I experienced this other, this other life, now that I was, you know, a teenager, I was like, this is much better. I want to figure out how to make money. And my father was always really clear with me. He's like, don't expect anything from me. You're going to have to make your own way. So I knew I Sounds wasn't. Sounds like Warren Buffett. <laughs> yeah, I know, Peter. Yeah, yeah. There's a couple more zeros involved with Peter's situation. And he also got some original stock that he sold for, like, Musician, like for for music musical or instruments, like I the story is hilarious. He sold it for like a couple of grand, and it's now like worth like an obscene amount of money. Yeah. Um, but but you know those are those are really important life lessons, and yeah. I'm super grateful that my father did that because yeah. it otherwise you know there would have been no fire in my belly. Right, and I truly believe that our experiences shape our life they do and, and that's what's happened for you yeah you know and now you're a successful businesswoman thriving business finally you're done I'm done right? I'm no done more startups for Kelly nope okay I'm done I mean so this 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 startup CEO is now in the next chapter and that chapter is really about legacy and giving back and that's why I love the work that I'm doing with backline it is so it it just it just I've created a family for myself of people that I absolutely love and adore and who are so gifted and so talented and had no exposure to any of the training or tools that I have been really gifted with mm -hmm. in my career mm -hmm. because they're musicians. Um, and a lot of them are also musicians of color. And so, you know, these tools, again, get to be an elite CEO. Yeah, maybe you get to get a high-end coach and stuff like this, mm -hmm. but it's really not something that the masses get. And it's, it's, stupid it's so stupid because it's not magic it's not it's it's really about life leadership and 
accountability and honesty and root stuff that you need practices around because it's hard. Yeah. And if you don't have practices and people holding you accountable, like a coach, why would any of us do it? <laughs> like, exactly. Why? No, I know. I know. I just, and I, I think that we're blessed to have worked in the corporate world. You know, we're, I mean, we have the opportunity to take leadership training. Yeah. And to learn all these things and to work with business coaches. And so we're so blessed. We're so blessed. That way. And so I'm so happy that you're taking what you're, you've learned in industry and giving back. Um, it's exactly what I do. And that's why you're in my tribe. Yay. Yay! I'm so happy that you decided to join me for my podcast today, Kelly. Um, and I know that people are going to be blessed by everything that you've shared. And so for all of you listeners out there, please drop your comments on my podcast site and or my website. We would love to hear your feedback. Um, and I'll also make sure that there's information and links to Kelly's book, Lost in Startup Landia. She's an amazing author. Um, this is a book that you definitely want to have in your life because it is transformational. I look forward to connecting with you again. See you later. Bye-bye.